It's good to see all of you this morning, and I would encourage you to please open in your Bibles to Luke chapter 15. If you're using a pew Bible, you can find that on page 874. Luke chapter 15 on page 874 if you're using the pew Bible. As we're making our way through this study in Luke chapter 15, I've entitled this Lost and Found because these are parables that are working together to describe heaven's heart for those who are lost in drawing them to himself. And as Jesus will tell parables, he'll tell those parables so that they are immersed in the culture in which he's living. They're going to be relevant to that culture. There are going to be nuances that that culture will understand that uh, those of us living in the 21st century may not. So I, I would encourage you to, to press in, to, to maximize our time in the Word of God on, in, at multiple levels. Uh, I would encourage you to pick up a study guide. Uh, we have uh, the third installment of that. It's anticipating what we're going to be studying next week as we start jumping into uh, the, the story of the prodigal son. That There are things about the prodigal son and about the narrative that Jesus is, is teaching that are distant from us. And so as we kind of immerse ourselves in kind of the, the cultural nuances and the language that Jesus gives, and we come to understand what Jesus is really getting after as he's painting this picture of the worst sinner, it will really help us to feel and appreciate the message that Jesus is presenting. So, can I encourage you to pick one of, the, one of these up? It's either at the door or at the Welcome Center in one of uh, a little box that's there on top of the Welcome Center. Pick one up, and uh, I would commend this to you throughout the week. There's also a connect group that meets at 9 o'clock from 9 to 10, or 9.15 to 10.15, I think when they actually get started. And uh, there's a great discussion that happens there as they're getting into the Word of God and, and talking about um, what they have learned together. It's facilitated by one of our leaders that's here, and, uh, and I would also commend that to you, again, to, to maximize your time together in the Word and to allow it to wash over your heart and help inform us about the wonder of our Savior. Well, Jesus will begin to tell a series of three stories. They're, they're really three chapters of the same story. We find in verse 3 that says that Jesus, in responding to the grumbling hearts of the Pharisees, tells them a parable. It's in the singular. And yet, what we find is three stories. The story of the lost sheep, the story of the lost coin, and then the story of the lost son. But these stories are all connected. They have really the same message, the same theme. Jesus is after the same truth. He's trying to emphasize and picture, illustrate this celebration in heaven that's taking place over the repentance of one lost sinner. We can maybe identify with lost things. I think everyone in this room, I would guess, everybody in this room has lost something at some point in time or the other. Some of us have lost things that are really valuable. Some of, things of us have lost things that are, that are not so valuable. Um, I remember as a kid, 
And uh, the stories that you read about uh, grandmas or grandpas losing their glasses, and there they are on their head, I, I, I always wondered, how in the world is it possible for that to actually happen? And then when it happens to you, you're like, oh, okay, that's how it happens. Or maybe there are more significant things that you lose. You know, you lose your keys and you can't get to work and you're running all over the house. You're trying to figure out, are they in the cushions? Uh, did I throw them somewhere and they just got lost? How in the world did, did I lose those keys again? Or how did I lose my phone? Where is that? Do I need to go on the computer and do the little location search so I can identify where that might be in my house or wherever that thing might be? We can all identify with lost things. So Jesus is telling this parable to really capture the attention of the audience who can resonate with lost things. Several years ago, there was a man named Jay Bradford who lost something really significant to him. He was on a fishing trip in December, so that can tell you this guy was absolutely committed to fishing if he's doing that in December off the coast of New Jersey, freezing cold. Well, it had been a hard day, a tough day of fishing. Several hours that he was trying to catch this, this uh, uh, brand of fish, species of fish that, that feeds on the, the bottom of the seafloor between 30 feet to 150 feet deep. So it was in deep waters off the coast of New Jersey. It had been a hard day, hours of fishing, no success. So in frustration, he decides, okay, let's, let's just go. Let, let's let, let's, let's do this a different day. So he's reaching over the side of the, sh- of, of the boat to pull up the anchor. His fingers are cold, they're numb, they're wet, and his wedding band falls off his finger into the watery depths. It wouldn't be so bad except that he had just gotten married five and a half months before. So here is this symbol of eternal love that is now making its way to the bottom of the sea. He texts his wife, Megan, his newlywed uh, wife, Megan, and initially she thought it was a cruel joke, but as he continues to describe the, the anguish of his own heart, she comes to realize oh, this is, in fact, a reality. He makes his way back. He's frustrated with himself. Why didn't I think to put my ring away? But uh, that was all for naught. The ring was, was lost. Determined to find the ring, Four days later, he and his buddy go back out to that same spot. They use GPS locations. They they battle some swells uh, of of water and uh, the the wind that's blowing, and they're able to to anchor in the the exact same spot where he had lost his ring before. The diver who was experienced uh, throws some metal washers into the, the water to kind of simulate how the tide may have taken his ring. And wouldn't you know, within 10 minutes, he's able to find that wedding band on top of a rock. What was wa- lost was now found. His heart was full of joy. He goes home to celebrate, as you can imagine. And it becomes a, a great Christmas miracle that they think about quite often. The joy of lost things. I'm sure your, heart, your own heart can resonate with finding that, that thing of great value that had been lost and now is found. Jesus, in responding to the grumbling hearts of the Pharisees, we find there in Luke chapter 15, verses 1 to 3, 
It says that now the tax collectors and the sinners were all drawing near to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. Three stories, one theme, all bound together as one to communicate the heart of God for lost people. Jesus, in responding to the grumbling hearts of the Pharisees, has this in mind. Why do you eat with sinners and receive them, Jesus? And Jesus, in response, wants to describe with this story the heart of God over repentant sinners and the, essentially the, the mission of Christ, as we find from Luke, from Luke 19, that he, he came to seek and to save the lost. That was the mission heart of our Savior. So this morning, as we look at our text, we're going we're gonna to find... Jesus' own posture towards lostness. We'll begin here in, in the first several verses in review, seeing Jesus' ministry to the lost. He came to minister to the lost, not only to seek and to save the lost, but we find from, from Mark chapter 10, 45, that Jesus came to serve and not to be served, to give his life a ransom for many, to draw sinners in to relationship. We find that tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to Jesus. And last week, we, we saw um, at least two groups of individuals who were here, the tax collectors and sinners, the scribes and the Pharisees, one group who recognized their distance from the presence of God, the other group who thought they were right with God but were just as far, just as, far away. Jesus came to call them to repentance just as much as he came to call tax collectors in sinners to repentance. You remember, as we looked at the tax collectors, these were those who essentially turned their back on their own people, who had sold out to Rome, who had pledged their allegiance, as it were, to a pagan, idolatrous empire with the express purpose of profiting, of spending this wealth on the hard-earned backs of those who were working in their own country to to profit off of them and to, to spend this, this inheritance or to spend their wealth on some sort of immoral living, comfortable living, covetous living. They were seen as turning their back on their people, turning their back on God, and turning their back essentially on the promises that God had given to Abraham, going all the way back to Genesis chapter 12, where God says to Abraham, I will bless those who bless you. And curse those who curse you. And so that these tax collectors, in coming against God's people, were cursing God's people and thus setting themselves up to be cursed as well by God, forfeiting the very promises of God to Abraham, becoming a curse. Then there was the sinner. The sinner who is often uh, coupled with tax collectors. We find nine times through Matthew, Mark, and Luke, tax collectors and sinners, this title that is used to describe this, this group of individuals. In the minds of those living in the first century, they were no better than those who betrayed Israel. Those tax collectors, these sinners were the dregs of society. They were the untouchable. They were, in the minds of those living in that time, irredeemable, beyond hope, away from God, so spent in their depravity they had almost no hope of finding their way back to God again. 
They had abandoned God's law. They had forsaken God's standard. They had moved away in rebellion against God and essentially disqualified themselves from ever being blessed by God again. The best they could ever do was slavish obedience to God's standards, which may eventually get them back to the starting point. Tax collectors and sinners were bad, but at least they knew it. At least they understand their posture towards God. At least they understood and recognized that they had, they had moved away from the presence of God. But these scribes and Pharisees? These scribes and Pharisees were just as depraved and, and just as distant from the things of God. They were just as sinful, just as distant, just as needy, but they didn't know. Jesus calls them blind guides those who had cleaned the outside of their cup, and in Luke chapter 11, says they're full of greed and wickedness on the inside. They knew how to play the game. They knew how to keep the law both on, uh, on the outside, the externals at least. They, they, they knew how to, how to explain the law. They had memorized large portions of the Torah, which is the first five books of the Bible. To put it in modern language, they had read the Bible, they went to church, they served in various ministries, they taught the people, they lived a moral life, they defended the traditions, they fellowshiped with others like them, they even practiced hospitality. But without even knowing it, they had actually turned their heart against God. They had become hostile to Jesus and thus hostile to God. Jesus explains this in Luke chapter 11, verse 23, when he says, Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Jesus is seeking to draw them in. Jesus is seeking to make himself accessible. Jesus is seeking to, to seek and to save the lost. Jesus is pursuing both groups. The grumbling hearts criticized Jesus of eating with sinners and receiving them. And of course, that was true. He was not distant. He did not resist them. He did not push them away. He welcomed them to his company, accepted their invitations. He was willing to extend fellowship to them during mealtime. Without realizing it, Jesus did eat with the sinful scribes we find that in Luke chapter 7, Luke chapter 11, Luke chapter 14, Jesus is eating with sinners in their grumbling hearts. Jesus is also eating with them, and they didn't even realize that they were part of this company of sinners who so desperately needed forgiveness and a Savior. He entered into their space, even though he knew it was a setup, even though many of the times that Jesus went to have a meal with them, he knew it was just so they could find a way to trap him, he made himself available. He was clear about the truth, and he continued to point them to God. But the Pharisees still couldn't see the truth that was right in front of them. What would finally help them get to the point of recognizing how far away they were from God? What was it going to take the hard truth that Jesus had communicated on numerous occasions to expose them for what they were, the hypocrisy of their lives? Jesus will tell this story to try to help introduce them to how out of alignment their heart was with heaven. 
how far away they were from echoing in mimicking the heart of God for sinners. So Jesus tells a story about the lost. And that's where we go next. Jesus' story about the lost. We find, first of all, the purpose for these stories. We're going to look at that for, for just a moment. It's interesting that Luke describes that Jesus told a parable. He uses it in the singular and of course, there were three stories that are all together, all bound together. Three chapters, one story, one theme. While all of these seem to be distinct, they're meant to describe the same heart of God for those who are lost in the warm reception and celebration of the Father over found things. Of course, stories that Jesus told were derived from traditions and from the culture itself. The complex customs of those cultures are not always obvious to us, and so it's important for us to, to evaluate and investigate the, the nuances of culture and, and spend some time seeking to develop the different pieces of this story so we can enter in and appreciate what would have been appreciated in the first century. Jesus spoke, the common people heard him gladly, one commentator says. In large part, it was because he spoke their language. He resonated with their culture. He lived and ministered among Middle Eastern peasant people. The gospel record reflects that content. He goes on to say, even the most educated people of Jesus' time would be familiar with the conventions of agrarian village life because the mores and customs that govern society had been embedded for generations in the common people's sensibilities, end quote. Jesus understood the culture. Jesus lived among the people. Jesus used common symbols in common reference points so the people of the culture could identify and be welcomed in to the stories that he was sharing. But all the while... They could understand the details of the story on the surface. They still struggled to resonate and identify with the deeper truths of these stories. And this is why Jesus told parables in the first place. You remember early in Christ's ministry when Jesus' message was clear. It was accessible. It was, it was poignant. In Luke chapter 4, when Jesus goes to Nazareth, he begins his ministry there in Galilee the, the crowds who were there marveled at the gracious words that he was saying. You remember that? And, and then just a few verses later, the strong words of Jesus about the people of Israel and their, and their posture towards outsiders came to bear, and they were so frustrated. They so hated Jesus' words that they sought to push him off the cliff, even there at the beginning parts of Jesus' ministry. So then in Luke chapter 5, Jesus begins to change his strategy, moving from a clear, direct message to moving to parables. At one point then, the disciples, confused about this change in strategy, asked Jesus in Matthew chapter 13, which is synonymous with Luke chapter 8. In Matthew chapter 13, verses 10 to 17, it says, the disciples came and said to him, why do you speak to them in parables? What's going on, Jesus? It's so hard to understand now. What is taking place? The message that was so clear is now concealed by these stories. And Jesus answered them and said in verse 11, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. 
For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables. Because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Jesus drawing from the words of Isaiah In Isaiah chapter 6, Jesus is saying, I am intentionally concealing truth from those who are not spiritually minded because I am working to graciously keep them from being culpable of the truth that I speak. And I'm entrusting my ministry to the work of the Holy Spirit to activate in their hearts the spiritual truths that are there in the parables and to draw them to faith just as he has drawn you, disciples, into faith. Jesus was so confident in the ministry of the Holy Spirit to activate truth that he spoke in parables and essentially concealing the underlying implications of these stories So those who are spiritually minded and and drew from the Spirit's help could understand, but those who are carnally minded would not be able to understand. So Jesus begins to tell this parable, these parables. We find in Jesus telling these parables a description of his pursuit of the lost. His pursuit of the lost. These two characters, both the shepherd and the woman, are meant to represent the pursuing heart of Christ, the pursuing heart of God. And we can understand John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he did what? He gave his only begotten son, the pursuing, initiating love of God to come into the world and seek to save sinners. That's what Jesus is describing here in Luke 15, verses four to 10, when he says, what man of you, having a hundred sheep, If he has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents and over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it. And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I have lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Both of these stories are connected to one another. Both of these stories paint the same picture. And Jesus begins these two stories in about the same way. He begins these stories with a question that expects an obvious response. He says, what man among you, when he begins to talk about the shepherd, and then when he begins verse 8, or what woman having ten silver coins, and then he continues his question. The obvious answer is, obviously, Any shepherd and any woman who has lost a sheep or who has lost a coin will do whatever it takes to recover the property that has been lost. Jesus is not describing an exceptional case, but he's describing something that was expected, something that was typical, something that was inherent within that culture. 
But what is not described for us is the surprising nature of the examples that Christ gives to the audience. You see, Jesus will use a shepherd and a woman as an object lesson of virtue. Shepherds were were near the bottom of the social ladder. They cared for the sheep, and this care for the sheep was the lowest of the legitimate occupations available to those living in first century Israel, ranking just above tax collector. Shepherds were uneducated, unskilled. They were viewed in the post-New Testament era as dishonest, unreliable, and unsavory, so much so that they were not even permitted to testify in court. You cannot trust a shepherd. They are not credible. They cannot um, speak in a court of law. They cannot be a defendant. Sheep had to be watched and cared for seven days a week, leaving shepherds unable to comply with the Pharisees' man-made regulations for Sabbath-keeping. Because of that, they were continually in violation of Sabbath law and thus perpetually and ceremonially unclean. But Jesus will use shepherds as representatives of the love of God in pursuing the lost. Jesus also uses women. I'm sure you're familiar with the treatment that women received in first century Israel. They were viewed as just a little higher than a slave. But but Jesus will show throughout his ministry the dignity that he conveys to shepherds and to women. It It was to shepherds that the angels would come and speak on that night. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill to men. And women would be an active part of the ministry of Christ. He would minister to them personally. He healed their infirmities. He cast out their demons. He forgave their sins. He willingly received them. They joined with his disciples, and they traveled with him to Jerusalem. We see this in Luke. He spends a great deal of time developing the dignity and the honor and respect that Jesus gives to women. You can trace the parallels in these stories. A man loses a sheep. A woman loses a coin. But the sheep and the coin represent financial loss, this measure of security that was now in jeopardy. For the shepherd, a man who was caring for a hundred sheep and to lose one was significant loss for him. To lose one sheep was a big deal. And for a woman to lose a coin, especially a widow woman, when she is depending upon the, the, the little bits of, uh, of comfort that she has, the security that she has in a coin, and being able to cover her expenses to lose such a coin was significant in that day. Jesus uses sheep and coins not by accident. You see... Throughout the Old Testament, Israel was personified. Those who were, who were rebels were personified as lost sheep. We find this in Psalm 119, 176, where the psalmist says, I have gone astray like a lost sheep. Seek your servant, for I do not forget your commandments. In Jeremiah chapter 50, verse 6, my people have been lost sheep. Their shepherds have led them astray, turning them away on the mountains. From the mountain to the hill, they have gone. They have forgotten their fold. 
And then, of course, the familiar verse in Isaiah 53, 6, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And Jesus described his ministry in Matthew chapter 15, verse 24, this way he says, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And then later in John chapter 10, verse 16, Jesus says, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. Those who were listening in that day would have been able to make this connection. Lost sheep is a lost soul. Jesus is describing the rebels among Israel, those sinners, those who have essentially disqualified themselves from God's good graces in his favor are, are, are pictured for us in this lost sheep in this parable. But Jesus also talks about a lost coin. I don't think it's a coincidence that he uses this lost coin because this coin the only coinage of the day, as you remember from Matthew chapter 22, the coinage of the day had the inscription of Caesar that was on it. It was emblematic of this oppression that was over them by the Roman authorities, this Roman empire. It would have triggered them to think about the taxation that they were under and the coins that they needed to give in order to pay those taxes. In Matthew 22, Verses 17 and 21, the Pharisees are asking Jesus, tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the task, tax. And they brought him a denarii. And Jesus said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God's the things that are God's. These coins were a necessary evil in culture and a constant reminder of their oppression. This is the very coin, perhaps, that this woman was looking for. Every dimension of the story was meant to point to the ministry of Christ, to sinners and tax collectors. The point of this is if Christ is personified by the shepherd and by the woman, these objects in, or these individuals in culture who were looked down upon, if these individuals in culture knew better and understood their responsibility of searching for that which was lost, how much more should those who are religious echo the same heart? How much more should they also emulate the heart of Jesus in searching after sinners and tax collectors? Notice the description of Christ, of the urgency of their search. We find the shepherd left the 99. He went after the one. He searches until he finds it. This threefold work, this threefold uh, activity, and this woman in the same way, she lights a lamp. She sweeps the house. She seeks it diligently. It's meant to emphasize the, the effort and the urgency, the determination of these individuals to seek after what was lost. Those stories were meant to describe the pursuing Savior, the Savior who came to seek and to save the lost. Then as we drill down and we look a little closer at verses 5 to 7 and then verses 9 and 10, we see Jesus' joy expressed through these 
these representatives in the story, Jesus' joy in finding the lost. Notice in verse 5, and when, speaking of the shepherd, he had found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I found my sheep that was lost. And then verse 9, And when she had found it, she called together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I have lost. Upon finding the sheep and finding the coin, there is this rejoicing of heart that takes place. Jesus is using a word to describe this energy and enthusiasm in this finding of that which was lost. And notice this warm reception of the shepherd. Not frustration, not annoyance, not anger, but he bears the burden of the return by putting the sheep on his shoulders. Whether the sheep was weary or injured or healthy, the, the parable does not say, but we, we find the shepherd in his energy and enthusiasm to, come, to bring the sheep back to the fold, puts him on his shoulders and bears the burden himself. We find this collaborative celebration that is taking place. Notice the, the verbs that are used, the word call together that is used in both of these parables, the word rejoice with me that is used in both parables. These verbs have a preposition that's attached to the word. This word soon, a preposition which means with or together so that the preposition is attached to the verb, they're inseparable, to call attention to the togetherness and the participation and the fellowship and the inclusivity of this community, rejoicing with the shepherd and the woman in this act of discovery. People in this small, knit village would have shared in the joy and also the struggles of one another, and that's what we find here in our parable as Jesus is describing the, what should have been automatic, what should have been natural, what was obvious and seen in culture is the very thing that should have been true about the scribes and the Pharisees. Instead of grumbling their hearts and seeing that which was lost being returned, even if as they looked around and saw how that took place in the culture around them, they should have understood how out of step they were with what was natural and normal. But then Jesus raises the stakes and talks about heaven's joy in verse 7 and in verse 10. Notice, just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. And then verse 10, just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Jesus is speaking emphatically Jesus is speaking decisively. Jesus is speaking authoritatively as one who knows, as one who has been there, as one who has observed the very situation that he is describing, this celebration that is taking place in heaven as the angels are singing and dancing over those who repent from their sin. Take in the spirit of what Jesus has said early in his ministry, He's addressing his critics, the Pharisees. In Luke chapter 5, verses 30 to 32, the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. 
I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And of course, Jesus was not implying that the Pharisees and the scribes were righteous. He was not confirming them in their deceit. He will confront them in very glaring and direct terms uh, throughout his ministry, calling them hypocrites, helping them to understand what he really considered them to be. There was a grace of Jesus to invite them into relationship and to call them to the same repentance that had been true about these tax collectors and sinners. Jesus is a friend of sinners, and Jesus has come to call sinners to repentance. As we turn the mirror of this text on ourselves, as we look at ourselves in the mirror of these words, what do you see? Do you see in your life a need to have a beginning relationship with Jesus? Do you come to understand that these tax collectors and sinners were the very worst of the worst in the minds of those living in the first century and in in some cases were considered irredeemable. But Jesus came to draw them in, to overcome the barrier, to lead them to forgiveness, to let them experience fellowship with God and to enjoy a life of the presence of God. Do you recognize, have you come to a place of recognizing that you are distant from God? If you come to a place, as it says in Romans 3.23, that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. If you come to the place in your life where you have, you've taken an honest look, you, you see not just brokenness, you see not just flaws, you see hostile rebellion and wickedness against the holy God. And you have come to understand that because of the posture of your life in setting itself against God, that what is expected for you from the scriptures is eternal separation from God forever in judgment in hell. But Jesus came to welcome sinners. And Jesus wants to rejoice over you. The angels of heaven want to sing for joy and celebration over one sinner that repents. More than 99 who need no repentance this morning. As you come to a place in your life of seeing yourself for who you are, do you come to understand that Jesus is a friend of sinners and seeks to draw you in to relationship and forgiveness with him? We would love as a pastoral team and as leaders to lead you into that relationship with God by introducing you to the scriptures and and helping you uh, know how to begin this relationship with him. Maybe this morning you have already made that made that transaction. You've already come to that place in your life where you recognize where you are. You've asked God for forgiveness. You've experienced his cleansing. You've enjoyed his presence. And now there's a need for us to echo the heart of God in pursuing a lost world as well. Do we champion the same heart of our Savior in seeking sinners? Is there a deliberate strategy in your family, in your own life, 
to, to welcome sinners into your circles and to, to seek to find ways to, to interact with them and to, to show them the love of Christ through his word and through the gospel so they can also enjoy this forgiveness and so that heaven can rejoice over them. During the missions conference, we handed out this book that uh, we'll show you here in just a moment. It's called The Simplest Way to Change the World. We have several that are left in our resource center. I would commend it to you. For, uh, for, those of, for those of us who don't have a whole lot of practice as it relates to hospitality and don't maybe feel a little intimidated and overwhelmed at the prospect of sharing the gospel with people who do not know Christ, you're wondering, can I answer their questions? Can I, can I uh, point them to the right truths? Maybe you're wondering all of those things. But perhaps they just need a friend. And perhaps you can trust in the work of the Holy Spirit to lead your life and draw you into truth so that you can share that truth with them. And I would encourage you in your hospitality, invite other believers into that process so you can host and bring fellowship and friendship to the people in your community that don't know Christ and you can do it together. You can grow together through that process and and they can see how the gospel has shaped your relationships. They can see the power of the gospel at work in your life as you're interacting with other believers who also love Jesus. May God help us this year to echo the heart of repentance on a consistent basis, to come humbly before the Lord, even after we've come to faith in Christ, to come humbly recognizing that it's our sin that continues to to distance us from God and and to to break fellowship with him and that we we want to press in, we want to enjoy the benefits of, of that fellowshipping with God and drawing near to him. Draw near to God, James says, and he will draw near to you. And may we echo the heart of our Savior for a lost world. Some of you do this really well. Some of us need a lot of work. And I wonder if maybe God can help all of us to grow in the the strength of hospitality and seeing what God will accomplish through our labors of showing the heart of Christ to a lost world. Lord, I pray you will continue to use these stories instrumentally in our hearts not only to call attention to yourself, because really that's what these stories are about, to help us come to appreciate the wonder of our gracious, loving God. May it draw us into repentance, and may it also draw us into the same activity of emulating the heart of our, of our Savior to seek and save the lost. Oh God, please help us overcome whatever discomfort we may have whatever obstacles may be there, to clear that away and to, to focus our efforts on mimicking the pattern of our, of our Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Have a great week.